Our scripture this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by one Spirit. To another, the works of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. And to another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that it would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that it would make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, and that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. This is God's word. Uh, good morning, my name is Drew Bennett, I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, it's good to see so many of you this morning. Uh, I, I, have my, uh, I have my sexy voice going today, it's because I've been sick, uh, so pray for me please, um, because I, it's just been, whew, it's been a, a long week. Uh, we are in a series on 1 Corinthians, and we've come to this section that is, become, probably this is a little more familiar than some of the other parts of this letter that we've I've been reading together. Uh, It's a letter about the church and how the church works. And so it's been good for us as a church to really uh, dig into it because it's been helpful, I think, to to 
you know, to really think through what it means for us as a people gathered in one place together to worship uh, and serve uh, the risen Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul planted this church in Corinth sometime in the 10 to 15 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. He then moved on to another city to plant a church there too, but because of the uniqueness of his leadership, he would uh, continue to correspond with the church leaders from the churches that he planted even after he had moved on to start another project. And the epistles, which make up a large portion of the New Testament scriptures, are these letters that Paul wrote to the churches that he had planted. Each of the letters was occasioned by some problem or some misunderstanding, some theological issue. And in 1 Corinthians, the problem is that there are factions in the church that have begun to compete against one another for preeminence. The church is at war internally, and Paul's writing to address uh, the church as it's warring uh, within itself. Now, unfortunately, if if you've been uh, in the church for a long time, you know all too well that this sort of division and disunity that is true here of the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians is the norm rather than the exception in most of the churches uh, in our city or that you've probably experienced in the past. Churches fight and divide, and people leave and go start other churches all the time. The church I grew up in was a split from another church in town where, you know, as a parting gift for the split, there was a fist fight in the parking lot of the church. Uh, there, there are churches, when we did research to plant this church in, in Winter Haven, there are churches in the city that are fourth-generation church splits. That means that they're split from a split from a split from a split of a church. And so we see this happening all the time. And the reason is always the same, that at some point the church or the people in the church lose their orientation to the gospel. And by that I mean that God's love and acceptance are not based upon our performance, but upon his mercy and grace. What happens is, is at some point, somewhere in the cycle, churches lose orientation to the gospel and become religious. And religious people believe that God loves them because they're good or because they're right. And see, here's the problem. If you believe God loves you because you're good, then you have to be good. And if you have to be good, then other people have to be bad. Or if you believe God loves you because you're right, then you have to be right, which means somebody has to be wrong. And it's that dynamic that creates all of the boasting and trying to puff yourself up and, and then on the other side criticizing others uh, and judging them, which creates competition and rivalry, which leads to hurt feelings and ultimately to division and all of it because the gospel, which should be at the center of our life together as a people, gets lost. It leads to all kinds of division and disunity. Now, this is a text about how in our differences... We can remain in community with one another and committed to one another. So there are three things here I want to see from this passage. Okay, I want you to see, really we get a real good, finally Paul's beginning to constructively build out a vision for the church. He's been talking about all these problems. Now he's really going to begin to construct a positive vision for what the church is supposed to look like. So you see Paul's vision for the church. Secondly, you see the obstacles to that vision. And then thirdly, we're shown the power to overcome the obstacles to become the church uh, that Paul and that the Spirit is calling us to be. Okay, so those three things. Paul's vision for the church, the obstacles to that vision, and then the power to overcome those obstacles. Okay, pretty similar to what we typically do. But let's just start 
uh, first with Paul's vision for the church. And I want to spend some time talking about this one phrase that he repeats multiple times in different ways throughout the text. He says the church is one body, many parts. One body, many members. Okay? One body, many parts. Now notice all the emphasis on the oneness. Okay, verse 13. One spirit, one body, one baptism, right? This oneness. The church is a body, a one people, interconnected and interdependent upon one another. And that's really, if we were honest, very uncomfortable for many of us. We like to think of ourselves as individuals. But according to the Bible, we're not individuals. If your faith is in Jesus, which means if you're a Christian, if you put your faith in him, then you're not an individual. You're an individual part of a body. And there's a difference between those two things. And Paul has this difference in mind. He says we are spiritually connected to one another the way the different parts of our bodies are organically and physiologically connected to one another. So for a snapshot, look down at verse 26. And in verse 26 he says, this is kind of a picture of the unity and the oneness that is to be ours uh, as, as the church. If one member suffers... All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, there's such a connection that, I, that I, I can't possibly live in isolation from, from you. And you can't live in isolation from me. We're connected in all these different levels. And so when things are going rough for you, then it affects me. Because we can't, we, we can't live disconnected from one another. Uh, two weeks ago, I, I got a call from a friend who was going through a really hard time. And I could just feel his pain and sadness as we talked. And for the rest of the day... I couldn't shake it, and I was having a really good day, right? But my friend was having a really bad day, and even though it wasn't my bad day, his bad day turned my good day into a bad day. Because that's what friendship is. And that's what the church is. The church is a people so spiritually, emotionally, even organically connected to one another, one with one another, all the way to if one member suffers, then it, that the suffering of the one person begins to impact and invade everybody else. It permeates the entire body. And if one member is honored or if one member is rejoicing, then all rejoice together. So one body, see? One body. But many parts or members. And this is where the issue of spiritual gifts, which dominates this passage, comes in. So what does it mean for us to be one body, but many parts, all with different personalities and temperaments and giftings. And this is what we want to spend the majority of our time talking about this morning, okay? We believe that in Jesus Christ, God himself descended. He drew near to us. He put on flesh. He lived and walked among us and breathed the air we breathe. We believe he did this in order to make the world right again and to do away with sin and death by offering himself in our place. We believe that after 40 days, Jesus ascended back to the Father victorious, bringing with him those he had rescued from the enemy. And with that passage in Ephesians 4 we read for an assurance of pardon, we are to picture the triumphant Christ returning home to heaven from battle on earth into the glorious heavenly city with the trophies of his great victory. That's what Paul's talking about there in verses 8 through 10 in Ephesians 4. He's quoting Psalm 68, which is a victory hymn composed by David to celebrate God's conquests. But this is the ultimate victory of God. Jesus Christ has come from the Father in heaven to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died. 
He's gone back to the Father in heaven once his work was done and is now at the right hand of God, ruling over history to bring about his purposes in and through his church. And Paul says there in verse 8, it's an amazing verse. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 8, that when Jesus ascended to God, he gave gifts to men. Do you see that? I know it's not the text, the scripture text, it's the, the other one, but pay attention to that. What Paul did there, he changed the words of Psalm 68, verse 18. In Psalm 68, 18, just as in any homecoming of a conquering warrior, the victor would come back from the battle, he would come into the city, and he would be lauded and praised, and he would be showered with gifts. Uh, and so he would, he, would, he would receive gifts from men. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus is a different kind of lord and king. He's a different kind of hero. When he returns home victorious, he does not receive gifts, he gives them. Jesus celebrates his victory with generosity. And so if you're a Christian, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, then what the Bible teaches is that you have the Spirit of God in you, the very person of Jesus Christ living out his life and mission through you, and he is empowering you as a part of his church for his mission in the world by giving each member gifts, verse 11. And these gifts are reused to strengthen the rest of the church toward the corporate witness of Jesus Christ in the world. And so if you're here this morning and you call yourself a Christian, by implication that means that the Holy Spirit is inside of you, living and empowering you in some specific way to carry out Jesus' mission in the world as a part of a corporate community of people tasked with that job. Now, let me just make a few general observations from the text about what these, this idea of spiritual gifts, okay? Because I know we, it's a good opportunity for us to just take a minute and talk about this, okay? First, we're told they're unique, or at least the implication is that they're unique. That, there are, that every single person in the church, because of their, their individuality, remember, not an individual, but an individual part of the body, that the gifts they have, or at least the, the complex of gifts that are part of every single person's life, are absolutely unique. And that means that there are some people who only you can help, and there are some things that only you can do. That your giftedness is absolutely unique and special because it's mixed together with your personal history, and your personality, and your passions, and all the different parts of your, of your life. So there's, there's something unique. There's a unique expression of the giftedness of the Spirit that is true only of you, which means you can't pass your job off to somebody else. But secondly, we're told that that these gifts are not only unique, but they're spiritual gifts. That is, they're, verse 11, empowered by the Spirit. A spiritual gift is not something you're naturally good at. It is a supernatural gifting of the Spirit in some concrete area of ministry. And so every single person in the church tastes and experiences the supernatural ministry of the Holy Spirit in the giftedness in their life through which the Spirit works. But then thirdly, it's unique. There's spiritual gifts, but we're told that an individual's spiritual gifts, the the aim and the direction of these things, verse 7, is for the common good or for what Paul says in Ephesians 4, the building up of the church. Which means that these things we call spiritual gifts, our individual gifts, they don't belong to us. Remember, we're not individuals, we're individual parts of a body, and so the ways that the Spirit has gifted each of us 
individually. Those gifts don't belong to us. They belong to the rest of the church. So here's what I believe. My gift of preaching and teaching doesn't belong to me. It was given to me by God for your sake, which means I can't use the gifts I have however I want or whenever I feel like or stubbornly refuse to use them because they belong to all of you. I am a steward to God and a steward to you of the gifts the Spirit has empowered in me. They were given to me for your sake. And the gifts that are yours were given to you for the sake of the body. They belong to the body. The body has the right of those gifts more than you as an individual do. And that determines the way we use them. Okay, But but we really have to change our thinking, don't we? Because we don't think that way. And this is why uh, I love that fourth membership vow. Uh, that, you, you know, you just, couldn't you see the joy on the faces of those kids who were up here on stage a little while ago? Right. Scared to death. And yet, sitting in my office over the last few weeks, talking with all of them, that fourth vow that says, do you promise to support the church and its worship and its work to the best of, of your ability? It's so great to... To say to them, you know what that means? That means that you have things that you're good at. That God, if Jesus has come to live in your heart, if you've been born again by the power of the Spirit, then that means that even at 10 or 11 or 12 or however old those kids are, even kids of that age, the Spirit is going to begin to put gifts and abilities and supernatural inclinations and talents into the heart of every single person born again for ministry for the church. So I would sit in my office and say to them, hey, what are the things you're good at? And of course, the boys would say something like, well, I'm a good soccer player. Okay, well, let's think about, you know, what, what are some of the things that you really enjoy doing? Because I'm trying to work them towards the idea of every single, see, the key phrase in the passage is each one. Each one. There's no exceptions. The, I believe with all of my heart and parents of the four that were up here and all of you, I believe these four coming to faith in Jesus, that they now, gifted by the Holy Spirit, have a role to play in the edification of the body. Each one does. So look at Ephesians 4 again. Pastors and teachers there, we are told, equip the saints for the work of ministry. They do not do the work of ministry. They equip and train each one in the church to do the ministry. They don't build up the body The body builds itself up when each part, each one is functioning properly. And so this is this language of all these spiritual gifts here in this passage, okay? That every single person in the church has been gifted in some special way that they are meant to then go and use for the edification of the entire body. Now, you see this big list, right? There's all of these these giftings mentioned uh, for one, verse 8, one, it's uh, the utterance of wisdom. And in another, it's the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit. To another, faith. To another, gifts of healing. To another, the working of miracles. And to another, prophecy. And on and on and on. And so many commentators and authors have written trying to figure out how do you classify and distinguish and what do you do and how do you really understand all that Paul's trying to say here, not only here but in Romans 12 and other places about these spiritual gifts. And so in just trying to sum up and help you think about how to classify and organize this a little bit, the old confessions of faith talk about Jesus having a threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. 
And it makes sense then that the ministry of Jesus in the church, by the church, would have the similar breakdown. And so in many ways, if you look at all of the classifications of the spiritual gifts all throughout the New Testament, you really could break them down into these three types of gifts. There are prophetic gifts that have to do with bringing God or God's word to people. So you have the gifts of evangelism, which is the ability to go and tell people who don't know about Jesus, about, you know, tell the message of the gospel. You have the gifts of preaching and teaching or prophecy or tongues, all of these revelatory gifts that that really have to do with bringing God or God's word to people. So there's this cluster of prophetic gifts. And then there's a, a cluster of what I would call priestly gifts that have to do with meeting people's physical needs and being sympathetic to people in their struggles. So you have in this passage gifts like mercy, which means um, you just meet people at their point of struggle or where they're, where they're hurting and, and you just enter into uh, the, the struggle with them. You, the empathy, being sympathetic, okay, or helps, the gift of helps, which is the, just the joy of, of bringing a meal to a, a lady after she's had a baby or when somebody's sick or or taking somebody's laundry and doing it for them when their laundry machine, you know, when the washer or the dryer's broken. The gifts of healing, right, of shepherding, of giving, being generous with your money to meet the needs of other people. So there's this cluster of priestly gifts, right? A cluster of prophetic gifts, cluster of priestly gifts, and then there's a cluster of kingly gifts that have to do with organization and making decisions. So things like wisdom and leadership and administration faith, or even the gift of apostleship, okay? And typically, typically, every single person would, would, be, would find themselves somewhat, at least with a strength in one of those different kinds of clusters. So there are prophetic types of people, and then there are priestly types of people, and then there are kingly types of people. And sometimes, you know, there, there are other strengths, but I, I think that's a good way of dividing this, these things up. And what we need to remember is that we need all the different kinds of gifts in the church, that people with kingly gifts tend to not be very priestly. (laughs) They tend to run people over. They tend to be task-oriented, not people-oriented, right? People with prophetic gifts, that's that's kind of my my gifting. People with prophetic gifts are visionaries and big-picture people who are not very good at the details, so they need kings, to help them be practical and carry out their, all their great ideas, right? You see how this works? All the different parts, all the different functions of the church, all the different gifts distributed as God wills, working together toward the goal of strengthening the church for her mission in the world. This is Paul's vision for the church. One part, I mean, excuse me, one body, many parts. Now let me try to illustrate this uh, in, in a way that's so tangible and hopefully maybe a little funny too. Excuse my sipping my water. I'm, my, I'm dying. Uh, my grandfather um, took up golf in his retirement. And it's a good thing because he was retired for over 25 years. So he played a lot of golf. Toward the end of his um, golfing days, when he got too old to really enjoy it anymore, he and his golf buddies, um, he had a foursome that he played with a lot. And they were, all, they were all kind of aging pretty quickly. And towards the end... They had to really work together as a team in order to get through a round of golf because my grandfather was nearly deaf, or what I like to say is he was actually selectively deaf. Anybody else have one of those? My grandmother and I would joke. We, we'd think we'd get something by him. He, he, would not, he would hear whatever he wanted to hear and not hear whatever he didn't want to hear. But as he got older, he had really good eyes. 
Uh, and that was good because in this foursome that he played with, one of the other men in his foursome was almost completely blind. So he would, so his friend would hit his ball, and then he'd have no idea where the ball went. And so my grandfather, who literally could barely get around, but he could see really well, would stand behind him, watch the ball, and then, you know, even though this, uh, this guy would hit the ball, not have it, and then he'd take him to his ball, get him set up to hit the next. Then there was a third member of the foursome that suffered from dementia. So literally, by the time he got back into the golf cart, he had forgotten where he was, and where the ball he had just hit had gone. And so uh, the rest of the foursome had to kind of keep him on track and make sure he kind of got through the... And I, I, man, he would tell me the stories, and I, I, some, I just thought, I'm going to go hide out in the woods and just watch these four guys try to get through 18 holes of golf. I think it took them like seven hours. But the point is, is that what they could never have done individually, there's no way. Together, they were able to figure out a way uh, to get through the round. And in many ways, in many ways, that's Paul's vision of the church, that we fumble and bumble and stumble around in all of our weaknesses, and left to ourselves, we would never make it. But together, somehow, all of our strengths mixing with others' weaknesses and all that stuff, uh, we're able to get the work done. So that's, see, that's the vision. One body many parts, all working together towards the strengthening of the body, towards the work God's called it to in the world. Now, secondly then, if that's Paul's vision for the church, then what are the obstacles? What are the obstacles that he mentions to this vision? And there are two in the text, and I just want to mention them both quickly, okay? Paul warns, and this is verses 14 through 20, and then verses 21 through 26. Paul warns, first, that there are some people in the church that might perceive themselves to be less important than other people with more public gifts that might then begin to develop an inferiority complex and as a result refuse to offer their gifts to others. So look at verse 15. Paul says, If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. Now, this is the person who says, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a community group leader, so I'm not important, I don't have anything to offer. And Paul says that simply is not true. In order for the body to work properly, there have to be many different parts that each perform their unique function. The body needs hands and feet, eyes and ears, right? Are hands more important to the body than feet? No. Are ears, are eyes more important than ears? No. So, what Paul's saying is, is, don't look at other people and wish you were more like them. Don't dream of being different than you are. Don't live with an inferiority complex, because if you do, you'll refuse to give your gifts to the body because you won't see them as valuable, and the result is that you'll end up handicapping the body. Paul goes on, verse 17, If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of smell be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the... I mean, excuse me. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of smell? Did I say that right? I'm really, I'm in a fog up here. Hold on. Verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? So what, what Paul's saying is, is you might look at a particular type of person and envy their strengths. Right? Maybe you're indecisive and you question yourself and they are strong and self-confident. But what happens is, is that in your assessment of their Wonderful strengths, you forget that those strengths you envy also come with a dark side of weaknesses. And if we were all the same, 
And what Paul's saying is, is we'd be really strong in certain areas, but we'd also have a collective weakness that would leave us handicapped. See, eyes see, but they can't hear. Ears hear, but they can't smell. Noses smell, but they can't taste. Mouths taste, but they can't see or hear or smell. And God has arranged all the different parts of the body according to his wisdom and purpose so that together we have all that we need in order to be whole. So when you look at other people and say, I should be more like them, or if I could just be like this instead of the way that I am, then Paul says you're handicapping the rest of the body. The body needs you to be you in order to function properly. So do you believe that? Do you daydream about being you? Because the first obstacle, Paul says, is this inferiority complex. People who perceive themselves to be less important than others with more public gifts and and thus develop an inferiority complex that causes them to not offer their gifts to other people. But the second obstacle is on the other side of this that some people in the church might have such an elevated view of their own gifts and be full of self-importance that they would begin to, to minimize the contributions of others and make them feel less important. In other words, they would develop a superiority complex. So verses 21 and 22. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, Paul says, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that are, seem to be weaker are indispensable. So it's this, it's this temptation. Again, we've seen this over and over again in this letter to the Corinthians where there are some who are elevating themselves and feeling superior to others and then others feeling inferior and this, this dynamic, this inferiority, superiority complex that's happening in the church that's causing all of this division, causing this break away from one another uh, and hard feelings and anger and either condescending smugness from these people here and then insecurity and, and neediness from people down here that's just causing all of this mess. And Paul says these are the obstacles, this inferiority, superiority complex. So then lastly, how do we then overcome these obstacles so that we can become, you know, so that we, Church of the Redeemer, can become the kind of church that's in align with the vision that Paul has for the church here in 1 Corinthians 12. Look down at verse 25. Uh, and Paul says, and down in verse 25, he talks about what God has done, composing the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Verse 25, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. See, that's the goal. So how do we get past all of the inferiority, superiority dynamics in relation to our giftedness that create friction and division and move on instead to love, okay? Here's what I want you to see. I want you to see how the superiority-inferiority dynamic is dismantled in verses 22 through 24. So let's read those verses together, can we? Uh, Back in verse 21, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Verse 22, on the contrary, parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed... All of that's a, all of that's a, a metaphor or a parable to explain this sentence. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be, may be no division in the body. Now, this is a theme that Paul's been addressing in this letter already that he's coming back to here again. 
That in his wisdom and grace, God chooses the weak ahead of the strong to show the strong that their strength isn't enough to save them. That God ranks nobodies ahead of somebodies to show the somebodies they're really spiritually nobodies. That God gives special honor to those in the church with lesser talents to remind everybody that talent isn't a spiritual currency. And here's what I think that means, as I was just trying to meditate on this this week a little bit. God works more powerfully and more profoundly through the, strong, through the weaker parts of the body than he does through the strong, lest the strong begin to put their confidence in their strength and not in God himself. Now let me just illustrate this as I come to a close, okay, what I mean by this. Um, excuse me, in Second Corinthians, in Second Chronicles 20, King Jehoshaphat, which was, who was a king of Judah, was at war with two opposing armies. And he was severely outnumbered, yet God told him to go to war. He gave him very specific instructions, okay? In every ancient army, you had all these different parts of the army. You had the warriors, who were the foot soldiers. Then you had the cavalry, who were the, you know, the, the charioteers and the guys that rode the horses. And, of course, you had the archers and the generals and the officers. And then there were... In, excuse me, in ancient armies, there were singers or the choir who were there to provide morale and to sing and worship God because ancient people saw war as an act of worship and obedience. Isn't that funny to think? But if you think about it, in the, you see movies about the Revolutionary War and the army was always led out by the guys, you know, doing the drums, right? And so there were, there were drummers and people with flutes and, and stuff that were leading the army out with music. So it's kind of the same idea. Now... As you might imagine, the warriors were the rough and tough types. The singers, not so much. Right? So when it was time to go to war, you would send the warriors in and the singers would stay in the back of the army with the officers and sing and praise God where they were safe. So the warriors, in the, in the scheme of warfare, warriors far more important than singers. Right? Easy for the warriors to look at those guys and say, what, we don't even need you. You know, easy for the singers to look at the warriors and say, I don't really know why I'm even here. I mean, I'm, I sing. Those guys go out there, kill people. Praise God. You know, I'm back here singing to God as we do that. Okay, so it's the same dynamic we're, we're describing. But in this story with King Jehoshaphat, God does an amazing thing. He tells Jehoshaphat to do something very unorthodox. Jehoshaphat is to put the singers out in front. Okay, the unarmed, untrained singers leading the army out in battle against, God, against the enemies of Israel. Okay, this is God choosing the weak over the strong. God giving honor to the parts of the body that lack it. So, as the story in Second Chronicles 20 goes, they lead the army out. And as they lead the army onto the battlefield, they begin to sing and praise the Lord. We're told the Lord God himself entered the battle and rooted the enemy. And that the rest of the army didn't even have to lift a finger. Now what's the lesson? I mean, what's the lesson? What are we supposed to learn? See, 2 Chronicles 20, 15, 16 and 17, God says this to Israel. He says, you will not need to fight this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, see that the salvation of the Lord, see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. For the battle is not yours. The battle belongs to the Lord. See, God chose to work through the weak in order to prove that salvation belongs to him. Salvation is what he does. It's through his power, 
not through the power of the strong, not through the giftedness of the gifted. And so God chooses to work through the, the, the less talented, weaker parts of the body to prove to the entire body that the work is dependent upon his grace and his mercy and his power from beginning to end. Salvation is by grace. It is what God does on our behalf. It is what his power accomplishes for us. And that's the truth. See, that's the truth that can heal the inferiority, superiority dynamics that cause division and disunity in the church so that we can care for and love one another with our gifts. Because here's what's happening. See, both the person living with the superiority complex and the person living with an inferiority complex in relation to their gifts have forgotten that salvation is by grace. Instead, they functionally believe in salvation by giftedness, which is the same thing as salvation by works. But if salvation is by grace, if it is what God accomplishes through his power, then the strong can't boast in their strength. The wise can't boast in their wisdom. The talented can't boast in their talents because strength and wisdom and talent do nothing to save. They cannot save. So grace destroys the superiority-inferiority complex. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He said it's impossible for a Christian to stay proud because proud people are always looking down on other people. And if all you ever do is look down on everybody else, then you can't see what's above you. But conversion, becoming a Christian is this moment when you stop looking down on everybody else and you start looking up. In other words, when you realize that your power and your smarts and your talents can't save you and you finally look up to God for help, you look up. And when you look up at God looking down on you, not in smug condescension but in love, when you look up and see him looking down on you like that, then you'll never be able to look down on anybody else ever again. Grace destroys the superiority complex, which means it destroys the inferiority complex as well because they're two sides of the same coin of pride and unbelief. Pride is always comparing itself with everyone else and then passing judgment based upon the comparison. So if you're doing well in comparison to everybody else, then you feel superior. But if you're doing poorly in comparison to everybody else, then you feel inferior. But whether you feel superior or inferior, it's a function of pride. And that's where the division comes from. And the gospel, we're told, destroys the whole system. It flattens it. It blows it to smithereens. So that we can begin to use our gifts, not selfishly, or to refuse to use our gifts selfishly, but they can become a mechanism by which we bless and encourage and serve other people. So just listen. This one last statement Paul makes from chapter 4. And then I'm going to pray. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who sees anything different in you? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? See, we have a choice. We can use the gifts God's given us to puff ourselves up or to build others up. And what Paul wants us to see is that these spiritual gifts, these powerful, supernatural giftings of the Holy Spirit are actually grace gifts. That's the word. They're grace gifts That your talents and your abilities are not something to boast about. They are God-given, God-apportioned grace gifts that have been given to you. That don't belong to you. that That have been given and apportioned to you by the Spirit. That you might use them to bless and help and encourage and serve others.
That's Paul's vision for the church. And so let's pray uh, that he would um, come and powerfully remind us of of his grace to form us into that kind of people. Can we do that, Lord Jesus? You are a king unlike any other king, that in your conquering moment you did not ask for gifts from people, but that in coming to your heavenly home, (coughs) excuse me, you, you celebrated your victory by pouring out your gifts upon, uh, pouring out the gifts of your spirit upon your church uh, so that she might be well equipped and made ready for the work that you have given her to do. And so we pray that you would help us to be wise, to know, to, to, to pray and to ask and to discover what it is that you've done in each of our individual lives uh, towards that end. We confess that we too often take our gifts and our talents and use them as ways of feeling superior to others, forgive us, Lord, for trying to use our gifts to puff ourselves up rather than to use them to build others up. And so, would you drive home to our hearts, even in the songs we sing here at the end of the service, the truth of salvation by grace, that the battle does not belong to us, it belongs to you, that salvation is what you do on our behalf, what your power accomplishes for us so that we might be humbled. I pray that where we've been looking down upon others, that we would look up, and in looking up and seeing you look down upon us, that we would never look down upon another ever again. Uh, So that we might be fitted and ready for the work you've called us to, that we might bear fruit that would glorify you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.